Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content. They may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. The boss was sitting at a table located inside the debriefing hut with what was left of his crew. Everything seemed foggy and out of touch. Internally, he was enraged with anger, his blood boiling, his heart thumping, hands quaking. He kept his eyes locked straight ahead. He could feel the looks of sadness, anger, and frustration his crew members were giving him, which only angered him more, for he didn't understand why they were all looking at him. It wasn't his fault. It was the Germans, if they wanted someone to blame. Just then, the debriefing officer arrived at the table, and he could see that the group of blood-covered, soul-crushed airmen were on the verge of a violent outburst or having a mental breakdown. However, he knew he had to do his job. You men have a lot of explaining to do. I need all of you to be honest, clear, and detailed as you can be with me. If you can do that, We'll be done here quickly, and you boys can get the hell out of here. All eyes yet again looked to the boss. The boss looked around at the table and immediately felt betrayed by them. They were all sending a message that none of them were going to answer for the mistakes that their commander-in-chief made. Anything to report? asked the debriefing officer. The boss... Feeling the silence of his crew pressing on him as though he had a lead elephant sitting on his chest spoke up by saying, I guess I'll talk, and proceeded to run through the day's events. After the debriefing, the boss quickly made his way to his hut alone. Along the way, the reality of what just occurred began rushing through his mind. He was overwhelmed with emotion, and with every step he took, his shoulders fell. He was the victim here, not the villain, he thought to himself. Why couldn't things just go right for him for once? The boss knew he couldn't fight the overwhelming emotions of anger, sadness, disappointment, and regret, and quickly made his way over to a hut belonging to one of the base personnel so nobody would see him. He arrived behind the hut and knelt down between a large water tank and the half-cylinder structure and began silently weeping pounding his fist into the ground.
Two days earlier, April 25th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 1054. The last three days have been miserable. It began raining close to midnight on Saturday the 22nd and hadn't stopped. Outside, the dirt pathways and roads had become rivers of mud and puddles of rainwater. The mud was so horrible that the previous night, the men attempted to go to the officers' club. But before they even got to the 531st Squadron officer barracks, they had to turn back. So, since then, the men had all stayed inside their dry, warm huts and drank whatever alcohol they could get a hold of. Inside Hut 299 was the boss and the rest of his crew, and the crew of Hailing Mary. The sounds of rain hitting the corrugated tin roof was mesmerizing and relaxing to some. Roland, what the hell are you doing? O'Brien asked. All eight men were either lying or sitting on their beds. Roland was currently laying on his bed doing leg lifts. Leg lifts? What does it look like I'm doing? Being a fucking asshole? O'Brien joked. How am I being an asshole? Because who lays in their bed doing leg lifts at 10 in the morning? A guy who likes keeping up his appearances and physical health. Joe, I've seen you drink a whole fifth of gin after smoking a whole pack of cigarettes. Roland stopped halfway through his leg lifts as he and the others in the hut began laughing and chuckling. <laughs> Red, listen, I saw Joe the other day taking, you know, those uh, air sickness pills they always hand out before a mission. I saw this fucking Goomba take one of those before and after drinking four to five beers. I asked him about it. This half-nut says to me, it's going to help him not get sick when the room is spinning tonight. Kaka added, doesn't it say in big letters in the back of those boxes, do not mix with alcohol? Asked the boss. It's just a suggestion, Brolin fired off. Hey, speaking of which, did you guys hear about the morphine and the first aid kits going missing? Asked Coca. I did hear that, O'Brien commented. Wait, what's this now? Is someone stealing the morphine from the first aid kits, or are they stealing it from the hospital? The boss asked, thinking immediately of Mickey. Yeah, a few weeks ago, there were two 17s from the 529th Squadron. They had brand new first aid kits. Both planes had wounded aboard, and they wanted to give them a shot of morphine to numb them up so they could make it back to England. Then they realized that they were fucking missing. Coca explained. Is it someone from the 529th Squadron shooting up morphine? Jack asked. Well, that's what they thought. But since then, there's been three, four more crews who have reported missing morphine syringes. Coca clarified. As Jack listened, he sat on the side of his bed polishing his shoes. He looked over at Andy who had his face buried in a book that he was reading almost his way of showing that he wanted to hide and escape from the group of men who made it clear that they did not like him, and Jack understood why. Jack couldn't get the news that Andy revealed to him just days ago out of his head. He knew the secret about the boss's wife was sensitive and needed to be handled in a respectful manner. He still wasn't sure how Andy thought the secret was going to be detrimental to the boss's ability to lead and change how he handled himself and his crew up in the air. Thinking back to the moment in the church, Andy was pretty intoxicated and more than likely was just excited that he had gossip on the boss and wanted to share it with someone and therefore told Jack that it was important for him to know in order for him to justify a reason to share it. But then again, 
Was there something in that letter that Andy read that led him to believe that the boss may have had something to do with her death? Another possibility for Andy's attitude towards the information was that there was something in that letter that made Andy think that the boss was mentally unstable due to having lost his wife. He wished he would have asked about the church, but Jack was in a moment of shock and just wanted to get Andy home before he told anybody else. Another thing that Jack couldn't wrap his head around was, why did the boss feel that his secret would affect his leadership? People like Willie and Mills would look past his secret and would treat him the same way they had treated him now, with reverence and respect. In fact, throughout the entire stint where the boss headed out for Jack and Rosie, not a single member of the enlisted men got involved or treated the boss any differently. Could he possibly just be worried about how Rosie, Texas, and the other officers that he hung out with would view him and see him? Then a new thought occurred to Jack. The whole reason why the boss headed out for Jack and Rosie was out of fear of things happening outside of his control, and therefore he would blame others for the things that happened to him which were out of his control. Was that entire episode born out of the tragedy of losing his wife? If that was the case, then Andy's right. The boss's trauma and grief was and would be hindering his ability to do his job. But then again, Jack remembered the boss's apology at the officer's club almost three weeks ago and hadn't noticed him acting irrational. The only thing that Jack noticed about the boss recently that seemed out of place or odd was his recent obsession with becoming a squadron commander. He had always talked about his goal of becoming a squadron commander, going all the way back to his first night that Jack had spent with the boss. But within the last three weeks or so, the boss seemed to talk about it on a daily basis, almost as though his mind was locked onto it. The boss seemed to have respect for his old instructor and current squadron commander. How could he not? Everyone loved Texas and respected him. He was like the funny uncle who showed up to every family get-together. He kept men like the boss in line and was an excellent squadron commander. On the contrary, though, the boss would oftentimes say things like, When I become a squadron commander, first thing I'm going to do is... Or he would say, When I become a squadron commander, I won't be like other commanders because I'll do... It was odd, but not uncharacteristic to the boss. The boys were also stuck in their huts, waiting for the rain to be done. Rainy weather was a bittersweet thing to an airman, for it meant that there would be no mission that day, and therefore each airman would get to live for one more day. Nevertheless, it also meant that for airmen who accepted their death, rain just prolonged the inevitable, and for men who had some hope of surviving this war, rain meant that they would just be away from home one more day longer. All this being said, the boys of Loaded Bull didn't complain. Well, except for Mills. I tell you what, I don't know if I should start building an ark with all this goddamn rain, Mills said as he sat propped up on his bed with a book in his hand. Hey, it's not like we're in the air. Stop your bitching, Mills, Pally said. Mills looked up from his book and saw Pally, Willie, Tommy, and Skimpy playing a game of cards at a small round table next to his bed. Whoa there, Pally. When did your balls drop? Asked Willie. 
This morning, apparently. Mills joked back. No, I'm just not in the mood to hear bitching, defended Pally. I like this Pally. I'm glad his balls dropped, said Tommy. Well, what you reading there, Mills? Beans asked as he got up from his bed. For whom the bell tolls, Mills replied. Oh, is that the book you got from Alice Footlocker? Tommy asked. Yeah, I've been meaning to read it for a while, and now that we're on, what, day three of this rainstorm? I finally started reading and just out of plain boredom. Well, I would be proud. That was one of his favorite books, Skimpy said, turning his face to face Mills. You think? Absolutely, Skimpy assured. I mean, he'd be a little pissed that he had to die for you to read a book, Tommy interjected. Mills, on the other hand, chuckled at Tommy's dark sense of humor. I think the thing that makes this book strange is the notes that are in the margins. I think they're in Owl's handwriting, Mills pointed out. What do they say? Pally asked. Well, this one is uh, commenting on the line in the story. It says, good line, sobering. It's like he's giving a commentary on it. Well, you've never done that? Skimpy asked. No, I've never circled or underlined the line in a book or wrote my thoughts and feelings in the margins. Mills said. Yeah, it's a bookworm thing to do. Willie said. Well, what's the line? I want to hear it. Beans asked. Mills looked at the line that was underlined and read it out loud. Everyone needs someone, the woman said, before we had religion and other nonsense. Now for everyone there should be someone to whom we can speak frankly. For all the valor that one could have, one becomes very alone. Wow, that's a good line, Pally said. Yeah, I like everything except for the religious nonsense part, but yeah, it's all good, Beans added. I cannot begin to tell you how frustrating it is for me that I have no idea what the hell you just read and what it means. This is why I hate reading, Tommy joked, which got a couple laughs from his buddies. It means that it's important for everyone, especially in war, to have someone they can talk to and speak honestly to. Because, as the woman in the story is saying, the more valor a man has, the more lonely he gets and feels. Skippy explained. Oh, gotcha. But why couldn't he have just said that? Tommy asked. He did, Skippy replied. No, in the way that you just did, in plain English, Tommy fired back. That's because that's not how Hemingway writes or speaks, Skippy defended. Okay, do you seriously think he talks that way when he's making love to his wife? Tommy questioned. It's Hemingway, I'm sure he does. In fact, do you know who he's married to right now? Skimpy asked with excitement. Skimpy, what about Ush makes you think we give a fuck about who Ernie's married to? Willie poked. Skimpy, having ignored Willie's comment, declared, He's married to Martha Gilhorn. Like, THE Martha Gilhorn? Asked Pally. Yes! Skimpy expressed. You know who that is, Pally? Mills asked. Nope, Pally admitted, much to Skimpy's disappointment. She's a reporter and writer, explains Gimpy. Oh, good for him, commented Beans. Do you think when they plow that their dirty talk is like something out of one of their books, all proper and shit? Tommy joked. Oh, you mean when one of them says something, the other one has to stop and be like, good line, good line, brilliant, Mills joked. Or when they're humping and one of them says something real good, they have to stop and write it down, Willie suggested. And then they go right back to sacking. 
Tommy added. You guys are so gross, Skippy commented. Oh, you love it. Besides, you'll understand when your balls drop one day like Pallish, said Willie. As the men continued their teasing and mocking, Mills flipped the page and a picture fell out of the book. Mills grabbed the picture and the moment he saw it, his heart fell. The picture was of a younger Al with his mother and father in front of a church. On the back of the picture were the words, Easter, 1938. Mills, with great sadness, quickly put the picture back into his book and closed it. Do you like war movies? Do they get your blood going? If so, I have the perfect, perfect podcast for you. This is not an affiliation. This isn't like a... We're sponsoring them. They're sponsoring us, so I got to mention them. This is just me strictly telling you about a podcast I love. The podcast is called Danger Close. It's a war film podcast where three hosts, a theater director, a movie critic, and a veteran come together each week to talk about a different war movie. Guys, this is a fantastic podcast. If you want to get into war films on just more than just a surface level, this is perfect. The hosts are phenomenal. The research is impeccable and the quality of it is just phenomenal. I can't recommend this enough. So if you guys enjoy podcasts, you want more podcasts to make your day go by faster at work or you wanted something to listen to while you're cleaning house or trying to fall asleep or you're driving in the car, guys, this is a perfect, perfect, perfect podcast to listen to. Danger Close, check it out for yourself. If you do, go onto the discussion page on Facebook Tell them that Aaron from Cancer 34 Studios and Snafu Podcast sent you. Thank you guys so much. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free, it's important, free resources to help you find out more about the 8th Air Force in World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. Right now, you can take a virtual tour of two real B-17s like the ones depicted in Snafu. Also, you can find links to movies, documentaries, and free YouTube videos, and much, much, much more. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. Now, back to the podcast. Four hours had passed, and the boss, along with the other seven officers in the hut, had attempted to venture out and go to the officers' club. But since O'Brien, who was the first one to step outside, got his boots stuck in the mud, they quickly decided to stay back inside. Boredom had officially settled in and resulted in some of the airmen rereading through old mail and sharing any spicy content. Oh, here's one from a few weeks ago, Sheila prepared. This one's from Betty. This is the girl from uh, Santa Barbara. Oh, is this the one with the twin sister? O'Brien asked. Yeah, okay, here it is. Dear Thomas. Oh, that's so adorable. She calls you Thomas. Brolin butted in. Just wait. Dear Thomas, it feels like a lifetime since we were last together. My brother just came home from his tour and he said you boys have it bad over there. Well, my dearest Thomas, when you're back in the thick of a fight, know that I'm here praying to God that you come back safely so I can have you all to myself every night for the rest of our lives. <laughs> now see, that's better. I swear to God, Sheila, if you survive this shit and you go home and you don't marry that girl, I will do you the favor and put a bullet in your brain. 
O'Brien commented. Nah. My goal is to find me a woman like Coca's wife. Ain't that right, Coca? Why his wife? Jack asked. Coca has the perfect wife, Sheila commented. Perfect? Perfect like how? Rosie asked, sounding intrigued, much to the boss's irritation. Oh, let me tell you about Mary. She's a literal goddamn angel of a woman. I used to come home from work every day to a hot, fresh meal, and she would cook everything, and I mean anything. Her mother was Italian, her father was Spanish. She could cook Italian dishes, Mexican dishes, Spanish, French, German, fucking Irish, Scandinavian, whatever you name it, she could cook it. Well, Irish isn't that difficult, O'Brien added. Italians, sure, there's a thousand ways to make red sauce. But have you ever had authentic Irish food? They haven't changed a potato recipe for a thousand years. If you add just a single extra herb, they call you a Frenchie. If you add garlic, they call you a Wop. There's nothing to it. Hey, shut the fuck up, O'Brien. Let me tell the story, okay? So anyways, a couple times a week, while I was finishing my dinner, she would put Grace, my daughter, to bed. And when she came back, she would do the dishes naked. And it drove me fucking crazy. She knew it, too. And I tell you what, her tits... They look like fucking torpedoes. You could hang propellers off them things. Oh, God. The boss called out. Sorry. Anyways, after I would start going crazy, looking at her and shit, she would take me into the bedroom. And we'd go out of like horny rabbits, you know? Like I said, she'd do this two, three times a week. And one day I asked her why. Because most women aren't like that. And you know what she says to me? She says... I do it because I know Monday through Saturday, you break your back for this family. At least I can make sure that your stomach is full and your balls are empty. Yep, that's the woman I want, Sheila interjected. Well, of course, who wouldn't want that? O'Brien commented back. I bet that's what Jack's got waiting for him back home. Brolin interjected. Coca followed it up by asking, Jack, you got any hot letters from Margo? It's Marlene, Rosie corrected. Right, Marlene, that's right. Jack replied. Yeah, I don't have any hot letters per se. I just have a lot of I miss you type letters. Okay, let me hear them. Berlin commented. Okay, well, let me grab them. Jack said as he went to his footlocker. Once he grabbed them, he returned to sitting on his bed and began reading. My dearest Jack, life at home has been dull. Not as vibrant as I'm sure life in England is. You could tell that to my dick. Coca softly joked, much to the chuckles of the others. I can't believe it's April already. How can the days go by so slow, but the weeks and months go by so fast? Your mom and dad started writing me regularly. You said she would. I think that's so splendid. Anyways, I want you to know that not a day goes by where I don't think about you and our time together. Especially our night at the Omni. XOXO. I hope to have more time with you soon. Love you always. Love, Marlene. Ho oh, ho, what happened at the night of Miami? Asked Berlin. That's nothing, Jack said, putting away the letter. No, spill, Berlin continued. Yeah, come on. We've seen your girl's picture. Tell us, and don't leave out any details, Sheila added. That's weird. I didn't even have sex with her that night. It's not too much to tell. Wait. You stayed in a hotel, a nice one, mind you, and you didn't even have sex with her? Asked O'Brien. No, we wanted to wait until our wedding night, like good old Lutherans. 
Brolin, Sheila, O'Brien, and Coca stared at Jack with looks of such shock and confusion. No, are you, are you still a virgin? She asked. Jack shook his head. Oh, but you didn't do anything that night? Brolin asked, sounding skeptical. Right. We ended up getting back later than we planned, and we both just fell asleep, Jack said. What buzzkill of a story that was. All right, who's next? Boss? Asked Brolin. The boss looked up with a look of annoyance, and both Jack and Andy looked at the boss with great anticipation. No, I'm good, the boss said. You're good? What does that mean? I know you have to have some stories that let us to share with the class, Toka said. No, seriously, guys, I don't have any. Besides, even if I did, I certainly wouldn't share them with you. What the hell does that mean? O'Brien asked. Yeah, what the hell? Are we not serious enough for you? An offended Brolin shot off. No, I'm just saying, the way you guys talk about your women, it makes one think you have little to no respect for them. And see, I love my wife. I love her way too much to disrespect her like you guys do. That's it. The boss defended. Well, pal, let me tell you something, okay? You apparently don't know dick about us. Truth is, I send my wife and my daughter almost every pay every fucking month so they can live comfortably. I send my wife and my daughter gifts nearly two, three times a fucking month. I have more contact with my fucking wife than any other stunard in the entire eighth. Do yourself a favor next time you sit in judgment over us with your fucking Sunday school morals. Take your head out of your fucking ass and shut the fuck up, Coca thundered. The boss looked over at Jack, Andy, and Rosie and looked stunned at Coca's outburst. Rosie slightly shook his head at the boss, almost his way of telling the boss not to engage with the men. Jesus, we're just trying to keep our fucking minds occupied from anything that's not related to death. Way to fucking ruin it, asshole. Sheila said under his breath. Back at the enlisted men's hut, the boys were swapping childhood stories and experiences. Stories such as childhood pranks, attempts at flirting with their crushes in school and failing, playground fights, etc. made the boys feel as though they were back home, away at some summer camp. Pally, as he sat on his bed, kept looking at the front door of the hut. The constant talking of home and civilian life made him feel as though if he were to walk through the door, he'd be standing on the front stoop of his house in Chicago. Closing his eyes, Pally could visualize his home street of Withthorpe Avenue on Chicago's area known as Edgewater. Pally always loved the houses, apartments, and condominiums that lined the streets of Edgewater and would often take the long way to get to and from school just to see the beautiful streets, especially since they looked better and cleaner than the neighborhood they lived in before and during the Depression. Pally, for a moment, felt like he could smell the scents of Mrs. Cathcart's honeysuckle shrub that she had in the back of her apartment. He remembered the first year that they had lived in Edgewood, and in late spring, he and his family were invited over to Mrs. Cathcart's home, where he and his father went into the back and got to pluck and enjoy the delicious flowers from the honeysuckle shrub. He bet that soon it would be the right season for the honeysuckle to bloom and be enjoyed. Oh, what he would do to be back home. Pally also remembered Mrs. Cathcart's dog, a lovely and friendly Scottish terrier named Kip. He loved that dog, but would oftentimes laugh to himself when he could hear Kip barking in the middle of the night and the elderly Mrs. Cathcart screaming at the top of her lungs to shut the dog up. 
She always worried that the barking would aggravate the neighbors, but to his knowledge, nobody ever complained. Sitting at the card table, enjoying some of Willie's cigars, were Willie, Mills, and Tommy. Mills could remember the first and last time he had ever smoked a cigar. It was the day after graduating from basic training, where he and his two buddies at the time went to a bar just off post and enjoyed some drinks and a cigar. Thinking back to that moment, Mills could remember with great detail the faces of the two buddies he had during basic training. He knew them as Till and Dill, since their full last names were Tillman and Dylan. Till was a lot like Mills in his demeanor, and Dill was the exact opposite, but somehow, they always got along. Dill was bubbly, always wore a smile on his face, and talked as though he had just won a million dollars. Mills knew that both Till and Dill went on to be gunners in the 20th Air Force, and he often wondered what happened to them. On the same note, it had been three weeks since he had last heard from his brother in the 485th Bombardment Group as a mechanic stationed in Italy. He was sure that he was just busy, as he knew firsthand the difficulty of rebuilding warbirds and returning them to flight status. However, if war had taught him anything, it's that death remains in the air as a daily possibility, no matter what or where you're stationed and assigned to do. He prayed that he was all right. Skippy was sitting on the side of his bed looking at the gold watch that Willie had given him as he listened to his brothers tell stories. The watch was a constant reminder of the deep-seated relationships that he had gained in just the last four months. Men like Willie were for the most part an annoyance or obnoxious headache to Skimpy, but all that had changed, especially in the last month. On a surface level, Willie was bombastic, loud, and always seemed to cause trouble. But on a deeper level, he was the closest thing he had ever had to an older brother. He gave Skimpy a personal gift, one that meant a lot to Willie, just to show his trust and his love for his crew member. And what amazed Skimpy more than anything was, Willie never bothered Skimpy about the watch. He didn't check up on him to make sure he hadn't left any scratches on it or damaged it. He trusted it with Skimpy, and that little gesture meant the world to him. Another thing that Willie did that made Skimpy realize how loyal of a friend and brother he was was the fact that Skimpy didn't even have to explain what happened with Emma and Evelyn before Willie took off to beat up those two guys. In fact, one of Willie's best qualities was, if anyone or anything attacked or hurt one of his brothers in arms, he would take the attack personally and acted as though he was the one who got hurt and without question would do what he could to protect those he loved. Skippy's thought process was suddenly thrust into a deep level of dark and depressive thinking when a prospect appeared into his mind. If Al hadn't died, would he and Al have been best friends? If his feelings towards people like Willie was able to be radically changed, surely he would have gotten along with people like Al better. He and Al had a lot of things in common. Both of them were an only child. Both of them had loving and oftentimes overbearing mothers and disappointed and dislodged fathers who had dreams and aspirations of their sons being and doing more with their lives than what they wanted to do. They both also loved literature and liked some of the same authors and books. 
The only thing that made Skippy not connect to Al when he was alive was the reality that he and Al were from two totally different levels of the social pecking order. Al was from the upper middle class family in the city and had the appearance, temperament, and charisma of a popular kid, while Skimpy was from a lower middle class farming family in rural America and had the appearance, temperament, and charisma of a bookworm loner. Oh, how war changes things, he thought to himself. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, and Q&A episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. Now, back to the podcast. Back at the Officers Club, the Ben's conversations had turned into a much more fun and enjoyable one for the men who were involved. Jack was in the middle of sharing a story from his childhood. Listening was Rosie, who was sitting on his bed with a magazine in his hands. Rosie had been in quite the good mood the last couple of days. He hadn't flown a tough mission in a while, and he felt that his chances of making it through this war might actually be a possibility. Not that it really mattered to him, he told himself. He was satisfied with his life and had no fear of death, he kept telling himself. He saw men like Andy and internally shook his head at the attempts to hold on to some prospect that he was going to make it through this war alive. It seemed uncharacteristic of a soldier to have that kind of expectation and hope. For Rosie, his only hope was that no matter what was going to happen to him, that he would help bring this war to an end just one more day sooner. This war was not glorious and left everyone he knew altered and changed, including himself. Thinking about what life was like back home, memories of himself seemed so distant and disconnected since it was as though he had someone else's memories of their life and not his own. Memories of playing basketball after school were now foreign and inconceivable. Memories of childhood friends were now clouded with mystery as he could barely remember their faces. People he knew since grammar school were now just figures in his mind. Even though Rosie kept to himself most of the time, which was a personal choice he made, in order to stay focused, he found that his bond with guys like the boss, Jack Grant, from Fenway Bombshell, was more deeper and stronger than anything he had ever experienced back home over the course of many years. That was something he never expected to get out of his time in combat. In fact, he often thought of something that he had heard Grant say a few weeks ago. He said that the biggest irony of war is that we are faced with humanity at its deepest levels of cruelness and depravity. Yet, it's also in war that we are faced with humanity at its most compassionate, trustworthy, and selfless. It all depended on what side you were on. Sitting at one end of the tables in the corner of the room with a cup of coffee in his hand was the boss. The coffee was shockingly good, as it was Sheila's special coal furnace top blend that he made with rainwater from outside. The boss finished his cup of coffee 
and he found his mind drifting away from the current conversation and began focusing on a memory that he hadn't thought about for a long time. The memory was that of the first Christmas that he and Catherine had as a married couple. They had just purchased their house in August, days before they got married, and by Thanksgiving, the house was fully furnished, and the boss remembered how excited Catherine was to decorate their first Christmas tree. Their lives at the time seemed so perfect. It was so perfect that the news of Pearl Harbor and the Americans entering into another war seemed to not matter to them. The boss was also able to visualize and relive that first Christmas morning. He remembered sitting in his favorite living room chair, watching the fire blazing in the fireplace as he sipped on a cup of coffee. That moment of calmness and pause was absolutely perfect. The sounds of Catherine in the shower on the other side of the living room wall felt like they had a personal waterfall in the house. Then, the memory of Valentine's Day appeared in the boss's mind. He remembered sitting on that same chair with a glass of wine in his hand, reflecting on the beautiful night that he and Catherine had. He had taken her to her dream restaurant in Youngstown, and even though the boss could barely afford to take her to such a lavish establishment, he was happy to do it. That night, he sat in his chair, feeling like a king, as he was so content. He had it all. He had a beautiful wife upstairs getting ready for bed. His family lived just short of a mile away. His in-laws lived just three miles away. He owned a beautiful house that was just what he and Catherine needed to start a family. And he had a great job that would only grow from where he was currently. He was good at his job. He was loving, caring, and a model husband and perfect son. Then, he was transformed into that August, where he and Catherine were to celebrate their first anniversary. The two were planning on spending a day in Youngstown, but instead, they spent it in the St. Elizabeth Hospital emergency room. At first, Catherine thought that she was showing signs of pregnancy, since she was feeling nauseous, fatigued, and had bodily changes related to pregnancy. However, when she had her period, she knew something was wrong. Not wanting to worry her prone-to-worry husband, she ignored the symptoms and was planning on waiting until after the long-anticipated anniversary to get it checked out. The night before, Catherine felt so weak that she could barely get out of bed, and by the next morning, Catherine couldn't keep any liquids or solids down. Panicking, the boss took Catherine to the emergency room, where they would run a series of tests on her. Two days later, a doctor came in and broke the news to the happy couple. The boss's mind quickly ran to the memory of his wedding day. He remembered how gorgeous Catherine looked in her dress. In fact, she was so stunning that the boss felt the air leave from his lungs and he struggled to bring the air back in. He remembered telling himself, don't pass out, don't pass out, as Catherine walked towards him. Little did he and Catherine realize, while they had their moment of perfect serenity, underneath her beautiful white dress, cancer was spreading all throughout her body. By Christmas, the boss wasn't sitting in his chair with a cup of coffee or wine in his hand, but instead, he was sitting in a chair next to Catherine's hospital bed with her near-skeletonized hand in his hand as he looked at his wife's sunken in eyes, which were looking at him for help. 
By Valentine's Day, the boss was back to sitting in his chair, staring at the fireplace, with a glass of whiskey in his hand, no longer hearing the sounds of Catherine taking a shower or getting ready for bed. There was nothing but silence. And it was in that silence that the boss felt the dark, heavy, and putrid feeling of grief pour over him. It was important that he stop the silence from waging war on his mind. So he did everything he could to kill the silence around him. However, none of it ever seemed to last long enough for the boss to feel numb. Then, he remembered returning home from work after being told that he was fired from his law firm due to his continual physical and psychological decline in the last seven months since Catherine's death. He remembered walking down Millet Avenue looking utterly defeated. Losing his job and the possibility of losing his legal license meant nothing to him compared to losing the woman who he had found out was the cause of his love for Annie and all things, including his job. As he walked, he heard the strange sounds of engines flying overhead. Looking up, the boss saw a B-17 flying about 5,000 feet from him on its way back to Dayton. The loud sound of its four engines suddenly gave the boss new life as he saw it as a guiding light or a divine sign of a future. Subsequently, the next day he walked to the recruitment center and nobody asked any questions. He packed his bags, gave his house to his brother's wife while he was fighting in the Pacific and set his eyes forward. He left home knowing he would never return to it for it held too many painful memories. He now had his sights set on a career in the service, since it's a job full of noise. However, he knew he couldn't get a job working in administration, but he could do what he had to do to show his capabilities in the air, become a squadron commander, and from there rise up through the ranks. He knew that men like Colonel Poole had the boss in his sights for the next person to lead the 530th squadron, and it was only a matter of time until that happened. And then... Just like with his crew, he would lead the 530th Squadron into being the best and most effective bomb squadron in the 8th Air Force. Eventually, they'll have no choice but to make him commander of his own airbase. Looking over at Andy, the boss knew that if anyone were to find out what happened to him prior to joining up, people would start to feel sympathy towards him instead of respect. And all it would take is just one member of the high brass to find out and start asking questions about the boss's mental status if he were to ever do something out of line. As the boss looked at Andy, any and all thoughts of sympathy, compassion, and empathy that he had towards his awkward navigator was suddenly snubbed as he now saw him as a possible obstacle that stood between him and the only chance of a future that he had left. Thank you for listening to episode 24 of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. If you would like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Canto 34 Studios, a DIY project helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies over Europe in World War II. I hope you do it justice. Thank you for listening and stay tuned next time for the season one finale of Snafu.